This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. On Monday, the Roman Catholic Church kicked off a three-week-long meeting. The Amazon Synod will investigate how church leaders should respond to chronic priest shortages, environmental degradation, and climate change in Brazil. Addressing these issues has already been stirring the pot. The Synod will discuss the possibility of married priests, the role of women, climate change, and how the church might adapt its liturgy and life in the Amazon setting. I'm going to read some remarks from Brazilian Cardinal Claudio Holmes, who is serving as the chair of the Synod, and he gave these remarks on Monday. He said, The Synod is held within the context of a serious and urgent climactic and ecological crisis, which involves our entire planet. The planet is experiencing galloping devastation, depredation, and degradation of the Earth's resources, all fostered by a globalized, predatory, and devastating technocratic paradigm. The Synod is one of the most important gatherings in recent Catholic history, and many secular news outlets will also be reporting on it. And we wanted to help our mostly Protestant listeners understand what's at stake in the Amazon Synod and what it could mean for the future of the world's largest Christian body. Today is Wednesday, October 9th, and you're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm Mark Galley, editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. All right, Mark, let's get a gut check from you. What do you think? Well, when I first heard about it, my understanding of uh, Catholic polity was, was a little bit confused. I hear the word synod thrown around. I'm not exactly sure what it, how important it is. But I think one thing we need to get clear uh, today with our guests is to figure out how important is a synod and what does it really do or not do in that world. But then when I heard some of the issues being discussed, I thought this has the potential of being pretty significant, certainly in the Catholic world, in terms of some shifts that this wants to make. So I'm I'm intrigued. Let's put it that way. I'm definitely interested in this just from a global South perspective, I guess, particularly about how they're looking at how the Catholic Church will best, I would say, maybe survive in the 21st century in a part of the world that they've been in for a really long time, right? I mean, clearly, maybe not as long as Europe, but the Catholic Church has been over here five, six centuries yeah, at this point. Right. And at the same time, they're finding it important and compelling enough that they need to be like rethinking some of these big things, which to me is surprising, right? Like if you've been over here for this long, don't the institutions already exist, for instance. But it seems like that's not the case and that there's something particularly unique about the Amazon and how it is a little bit vexing for the church at this moment, so much so that they're kind of open to asking these, which is also notable too, because at least for like this like role of women or married priests, the things that feel quote unquote more progressive, I guess I might expect those conversations to be taking places in countries that are quote unquote more yeah, progressive or secular. You're thinking of that, that would be a synod about Europe or about America. Exactly. Or right. When 
when we know that Brazil, for instance, is very deeply religious, right? So it's like, oh, what is, what about this is provoking those? Those conversations. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So who is our guest today? Our guest is Christopher White. He is the national correspondent for Crux, a one-stop destination website for the best in Catholic news, analysis, and commentary, as their about page puts it. I would say they're somewhat similar to Christianity Today in that respect, but in the Catholic world. White holds an MA in Ethics and Society from Fordham University. He's former director of Catholic Voices USA, and his writings have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and the Washington Post, among many other print and online publications. He has yet to be published in CT, but that will be happening eventually, I hope. Welcome, Chris. Great to be with you, Mark Morgan. And yes, I I, I hope that as well. I've, I've long read Christianity Today and grateful to be with you all. Can you tell us a little bit about synods? What are they in the Catholic tradition? Simply put, a synod is an advisory council or body to the Pope. The synods really date back to the Second Vatican Council, which took place between 1962 and 1965, in which the Church was really trying to grapple with how do we engage ourselves in the modern world. And one of sort of the byproducts of that was the idea of these synods, which are convened at the behest of the Pope. They take place every few years, sort of at the Pope's uh, initiation, typically to advise on a particular topic or a particular region. Pope John Paul II in the 80s held a number of sort of special synods to focus on regions of the church. So he had two synods on Africa, two synods on Europe, one on Asia, that sort of thing. They've also been topical. So we've had synods on the priesthood or communion and the Eucharist. This is Pope Francis's fourth synod. He's had two synods on the family. And then most recently, last October, he convened a synod on uh, young people and the future of the church. This is his sort of first special synod focused on a particular region, that of the Amazon. It tips the cap to a more collegial understanding of the way church makes decisions? That, that's right. It's, it's you know, if, if you want to put it in sort of a U.S. context, this isn't, a, a, you know, a, an exact comparison, but let's say it's sort of the, you know, a house of representatives gathering people from particular regions of the country and convening them all in one location. Now, again, that's not exact. The Senate has no real authority. Any sort of final decisions that come out of the Senate are made by the Pope and the Pope alone. You know, this Senate will take place over the course of three weeks in Rome. And over the course of these three weeks, the bishops, there are roughly about 300 of them, will be sort of fine-tuning this this final document where they will make certain recommendations on the, the topic at hand. But then the Pope will take that to, to himself. And then perhaps six months from now, you know, give or take a few months, we'll get a final, we'll, we'll likely get a final document from the Pope himself, which will either come in the form of an apostolic exhortation or what's known as an encyclical which is sort of the Pope's major sort of treatise on a, on a topic of concern. When you say that the Pope and the Pope alone is the individual that is going to be making the actual decision or, dare I say, doctrine on this, I'm not sure what the correct word is there. Would you, would you say that synods are just symbolic or that they actually have real teeth when it comes to kind of affecting what the Pope ends up deciding to do? Under Pope Francis, uh, the synods have become quite interesting sort of high-profile events. 
sentence. This isn't a judgment by any means on the sentence that took place under Pope uh, John Paul II and Benedict XVI. But I think, you know, most observers would say those were largely symbolic, giving a chance for leaders from Africa to get to know one another better and for the global church to get a greater understanding of that particular region. But they didn't grapple with real sort of doctrinal issues in which they took up issues that could substantively change the practice of the church. Now, under Pope Francis, that's been different. You know, his two synods on the family wrestled with, among other issues, that of communion. In the end, Pope Francis issued, you know, after after two synods and, you know, over two years of deliberations, he issued a document that allowed for a cautious opening to communion for divorced and remarried Catholics, which did move forward the church's pastoral teaching on, on that particular issue. The same here with the Synod on the Amazon, where among the many issues that they're going to be discussing in Rome over the next three weeks is that of perhaps relaxing the celibacy requirement for priests because there is such a shortage of priests in the particular region of the Amazon, and they're grappling with what to do about it. And so I think under Pope Francis, we've seen sort of a, a new interest in synods because of what they may achieve. Let's talk about this particular synod that is happening. Why has the synod been convened in particular for this particular location? This synod was announced by Pope Francis about two years ago in October of 2017. Now, before that, in 2015, he had already sort of commissioned a special office that focused on the Amazon, uh, in the Amazon. And again, the celibacy requirement or the question of married priests is what's become the dominant storyline. That's not ultimately what Pope Francis is motivated by here. What he's motivated by is a number of things, but perhaps chief among them is the fact that this is a remote area of the world where there are a number of Catholics, depending on how you do the math, you could say anywhere from 3 million to 20 million, depending on how you want to actually define the Amazon region. Often these communities are isolated. They lack priests. You know, in, in, in the U.S., we think we have a priest shortage as Catholics. It's nothing compared to the dramatic shortages they have in the Amazon. The Pope is effectively trying to have the global church wrestle with, you know, how do we attend to this remote region of the world and provide them with greater pastoral care? At the same time, this is an area of the world that is experiencing tremendous ecological destruction, often at the hands of the first world. For Pope Francis, I believe he believes this requires a global response. Beyond that, I think he thinks that the Amazon region and and the faith of those in indigenous people in the Amazon have a lot to teach the global church. One of the major themes of his papacy from the time he was elected in 2013 is how to sort of reorient the church, the global church, to be what he has termed a poor church for the poor. And I think he's wanting to draw on the tradition of the Amazon to help carry that forward. Why don't you explain why it's so important for Catholics to have a priest? From a Protestant perspective, we say, well, we don't really need ordained ministers if we have a a distant village, we just, we raise up leadership within that group. Someone starts to preach and take administrative role in the church, in the local church, and we move on. But for Catholics, that's not the case at all. So why is it important to have a priest? That's right, Mark. You know, for Catholics, it is only the priest who is allowed to administer certain sacraments within the church, most specifically that of administering the Eucharist. And for Catholics, the Second Vatican Council says the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Catholic faith. And in these particular areas of the Amazon, we're 
priests are largely itinerant. Some of these regions are used to only seeing a priest once once a year, maybe twice a year. It, it really is considered by many Catholics spiritual deprivation to deny Catholics communion. And when it's only the priest that has that authority or that capacity in, in the Catholic tradition, then it, it's a real issue of, of sort of spiritual well-being, and the Pope is trying to sort of put that front and center. For listeners who've read The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene, in which there was a shortage of priests in a period in Mexican history where there was a lot of persecution of Catholics, you get this powerful sense from these distant villages in which this one priest is visiting how desperate they are to have, to receive communion, to hear to have a priest hear their confessions. And I think that would, that would help people understand what's going on in Brazil right now as well, I would think. So is this issue of priest shortages in the Amazon a new issue or a new problem? It's certainly been on decline for a number of years. I mean, the general demographics of the Amazon have changed rapidly. If you think, you know, Brazil is sort of the center of, of, of the region. 50 years ago, pretty much everyone was was Catholic. And now as of the, some of the most recent polls sort of put that number at closer to sort of 60 to 65 percent of the population as, as being Catholic. So with the general decline of Catholicism more broadly, you can also trace a a pre-shortage as well. In the, in the U.S., there's roughly, to, to my knowledge, I believe, you know, one Catholic priest for a, about a population of every, you know, thousand or, or so. And in the Amazon, that's where it's 15 to 30,000, depending on, on, on the region. There's quite a disparity there. I do want to talk about the married priest situation that is going to be raised by the Synod. What type of precedent is there for having a discussion about the possibility of married priests? Let's just rewind a bit. The, the tradition of, of, of celibacy in the Catholic Church is something that is part of the Church's tradition, but it is not part of the, the Church's doctrine. So it's important to, re, to remember and to sort of state clearly that should the Synod allow for the possibility of married priests, it is not changing what would be considered Church doctrine, but that of practice or, or tradition. It was only in the 12th century when the Catholic Church formally enacted the celibacy requirement for priests, and then I believe it was about 300 years later that another Vatican Council affirmed that, uh, and that's been the tradition going forward since then in the vast majority of cases. But there are exceptions to think back to not so long ago in you know, 2010, 2011, Pope Benedict XVI, who was certainly not a, a squishy theological type figure, allowed for married Anglican priest who wanted to come into into the Catholic fold to continue to serve as priest as married men. You know, the Eastern Rite Catholics as well, they, they have married priests under certain circumstances. So there is room for this within the Catholic tradition. And what Pope Francis has said in recent years when asked about this is that he doesn't want to sort of throw out the tradition of celibacy within the Catholic tradition entirely, uh, but he does think it needs to be up for discussion in particular regions where the pastoral concern trumps that of common practice. And, you know, he specifically cited that of sort of the Pacific Islands or the Amazon, where, you know, he feels the pre-shortage is most significant. You say that it's not a matter of doctrine, but of tradition. But my experience in reading history, sometimes the, a matter of tradition is actually much more viscerally important to people than a matter of doctrine. Yeah, it's something that, you know, particularly Catholics in, in this country and in most sort of sort of the Western tradition, you know, it's something 
we're, we're not used to. You know, there are married priests throughout the U.S. who are either Anglicans or Eastern Rite, but it kind of gives Catholic whiplash because they, it, it, it's so foreign to them. The whole idea of priestly celibacy is, is something that sort of stems from the idea that the priest is to act in persona Christe, in the, in the person of Christ, and in, in the same way in which Christ, his bride, was that of the church. The Catholic tradition has largely upheld that that is sort of the model for, for the priesthood throughout the world. You said tradition, for many Catholics, sort of becomes assumed that of teaching. I was a Presbyterian pastor for 10 years, and I will say I do. There were, was not unusual to look longingly at the vocation of Catholic priests in the sense that, you know, as a married man and a father, one's loyal, one's uh, loves and loyalties are, are divided many, many times in the pastorate. There were times when I just wish I could just focus on one family to love. <laughs> yes, exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Chris, what do you think will be discussed when it comes to the role of Catholic women? In yesterday's opening remarks, Cardinal Humes, who you cited at the top of the uh, of the podcast, talked about the need for enhanced Catholic ministry ministry for, for women. The church isn't considering that of ordination. That's not up for debate at the moment or in, in, in the Senate, to be sure. But yesterday at a press conference at the Vatican, there was a nun from the region who was asked this very question. And, you know, she said there, there are lots of roles in which women can and, and should be allowed to sort of act. And the church needs to think through what that looks like in an official capacity. Women sort of being Eucharistic ministers, women that can sort of hear confessions, but not offer absolution, which is, again, another part of the Church's sacramental tradition. And then sort of, I guess, the the real sort of hot-button issue within the Catholic Church would be for that of of women deacons, which there's, you know, some historical debate over, you know, the the fact that the Church did have women deacons in the early Church, what that looked like, and if it served the same uh, sort of role, that of an ordained minister is a matter of theological dispute. Pope Francis himself has commissioned, you know, a few years ago, commissioned a study on this very question. Some of those in the church that push for a greater role of women are hoping that the Synod will allow the Pope to get concrete when he talks about women's leadership for him to perhaps spell out what that can actually mean. Is there a current part of the world where women have a more robust presence in church, I don't know, leadership? Catholic, yeah. Catholic life and liturgy. I think it's important to say that it's really... Catholic religious women, the, the, the sisters are, are, are nuns who are responsible for running so many of the church's institutions from its schools and hospitals to even serving as parish administrators in, in many places around the globe. I mean, from Africa to, to Latin America to Asia, in my own global travels covering the church, I don't think there's anywhere I've been in the world where it hasn't been the sisters on the front lines really doing both the grunt work and, the, and also exercising real authority. Well, the global church is indebted to that of women religious. The frustration, I think, for some of some critics would be the church has simply relied on them without formalizing their role in any official sort of way. Yes, that's interesting. This is not the first time that the church has addressed climate change and the environment. Even under Pope Francis, there was an encyclical a couple years ago about some of these issues. What is going to make this particular conversation unique, I guess, and what the church might have to say about these issues. 
In 2015, Pope Francis issued an encyclical, sort of a major letter on climate change called Laudato Si. Laudato Si was largely seen in 2015 as his effort to rally governments around the world and other institutions to address the the challenge of, of climate change. In calling this synod on the Amazon, you know, if you look at what's called the working document, which is this 60-something page document, sort of, that is the foundation for discussion over the next few weeks. Laudato Si is is sort of peppered throughout, so it, it's sort of drawing deeply on that. And it's really a call for the church to better understand our relationship uh, and for the human persons in general, uh, all of mankind, to understand its relationship with, with the world around us. The idea being that if, you know, if we under, understand our relation with the world as that of a, a gift, it will sort of help us in our task of stewarding the in, environment. It's taken on particular urgency in the Amazon region, where you've seen, you know, a major uptick in forest fires. It was a continuing news story throughout the, the summer up until last month, where really it was just a result of some rain that some of these fires have diminished. The Amazon rainforest provides so much of the world's oxygen. So even though it's a particular area of the world, you know, it's arguable that so much of the world depends on what happens, you know, in in that rainforest and that we're all called to protect that that environment. When Pope Francis was elected pope in 2013, Cardinal Humes, who the pope has appointed as sort of the chair of the Senate, leaned over to him and he said, don't forget the poor. For Pope Francis, you know, one of the phrases that he's echoed throughout the six years that he's been pope has been, you know, let us hear the cries of the earth and the cries of the poor. And he sees these two as connected. So whether it's Laudato Si, his letter from 2015, or this synod, I think he is trying to use the church's sort of vast global network, as well as its sort of moral authority in the public square to put this issue front and center. So help me understand the pushback on that. I understand it's pretty pretty vociferous. There is a concern that in addressing climate change, the Catholic Church is, be- is going to become over-politicized and it's going to turn into a glorified social service agency or social justice agency, when for decades, if not centuries, the Church has spoken out on labor relations, obviously ab- ab- abortion, among other social issues, immigration. Am I reading the tea leaves right that there is a kind of a visceral reaction of a certain part of the Church of addressing this particular ecological issue? To, to be sure, let me try to answer that in a, in a few different stages. On a local level, the idea of addressing climate change and in particular calling attention to the Amazon region is getting pushed back on the ground, particularly by current Brazilian government uh, and other governments in the region, because the Brazilian rainforest could be a huge, and is in many respects, a huge moneymaker. Miners uh, particular interest in the region. You know, there's tremendous deforestation that is occurring because there's a lot of money to be made uh, by the vast resources there. So that is one reason why on a very local level in Brazil and in other parts of South America that there's skepticism of the church intervening here. From a U.S. perspective, Pope Francis wrote in 2015 that, he, you know, the church is not there to, you know, we're not playing 
playing that of science, but it accepts the science on climate change. He upset a lot of oil and gas corporations in, in this country and beyond who wanted to see the church sort of either step out of the way or, or stay stay quiet when it comes to this issue. But, you know, Mark, as you noted, the, the church has a long tradition of speaking out on whether it's labor rights, that of abortion and life issues to other human rights issues. This isn't new to Pope Francis. Pope Benedict XVI became known as the Green Pope for his his own emphasis on ecological matters. John Paul II spoke out on ecological concerns. The fact that Pope Francis has put a sort of a major spotlight on it does not mean that this is not part of the Catholic tradition. It's just, quite frankly, there's so much money at stake that those that have vested interest in the region uh, and in the things that Pope Francis is sort of calling out and saying, we need to rethink our way of living. He's upsetting a number of major stakeholders. And I think that is once again sort of bubbling up here at the Synod. Chris, you mentioned some of the maybe outside opposition. I want to talk about the way that climate change may or may not have been politicized within the Catholic leadership. Is that something that's also happening as well? One way to answer that, and you know, feel free to take this in any direction that you wish, but it's a matter of fact, rather, that Pope Francis, since his election in 2013, has been a polarizing figure. Now, you know, his approval ratings among Catholics and non-Catholics alike would be the envy of that of most politicians. But he's within the church, you know, he's he's still a polarizing figure. To some respects, in the U.S. church, there's been, you know, some would describe it as a civil war within the U.S. hierarchy. You know, there are those that are resistant to the what would be termed as the Pope's reform agenda. So a shift in emphasis on, uh, you know, what would be seen as maybe sort of sexual uh, ethics to that of environmental concerns or concern for immigration or the, or the poor. This sort of shift in emphasis has created some backlash within his, his own church, within his own community. Climate change is one of those divisive, divisive issues. We look at our own politics in, in this country. You know, there are a number of climate change deniers many of whom, you know, it's just a matter of fact, who themselves are, are Catholics. So the Pope is yet to win over his own house on, on this issue. And because of that, this issue is politicized within the church. So this is perhaps a simplification, but there are some who simply believe that, you know, if, if you believe in climate change, then you must be, you know, with the Pope. And if you don't believe in climate change, you must be against the Pope. That binary isn't exact or anything, but it, it is certainly a, a neuralgic, sensitive issue for a number of Catholics. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. I think we could easily spend an entire podcast kind of talking about the 
infighting that has occurred between the church's conservative and liberal divisions. But it would be helpful, Chris, if you could just give us a sense for what this particular synod will mean for the two different factions, I guess, that have emerged under Francis. Let let me put it this way first. Unlike the past few synods that Pope Francis has called, when, where they've taken up questions of, you know, communion for divorced and remarried Catholics or the churches, how to provide pastoral care for LGBT Catholics, some, some of these hot button issues, the sort of participants of the synod, the, you know, roughly 300 people in that room had various backgrounds and mixed opinions. This synod is quite different because, you know, a, among the bishops from the Amazon region, they're all fairly united in the fact that something has to be done to provide greater pastoral care and access to the sacraments for those from the region. They're all sort of in agreement on the ecological uh, stakes at play here. Where the controversy comes in for this and it is sort of those sort of watching from the outside. So what's at stake here? Well, for, for lack of a better term, those who are more traditional and who have voiced skepticism or opposition to Pope Francis, they say, to use Mark's language from earlier, that the church is just just getting too caught up in in being social actors. One of the cardinals, Cardinal Walter Brandmuller, he's a German cardinal who's been sort of a, a vocal and persistent critic of Pope Francis, wrote a document some months ago sort of saying, you know, what does economics and politics have to do with theology? And to which one of Pope Francis's closest advisors in this Senate said, it has everything to do with it. So there is just sort of this real difference in understanding of what the church should be focused on. Secondly, I, I think, you know, for, for those that are are more progressive or at least sort of on board with what would be termed as Pope Francis's reform efforts, the push toward, you know, allowing married priests is, for them, would be taken as a sign of victory, that the church can sort of change and and modify some of its core practices to sort of accommodate for the times. So in some respects, it's being set up as sort of this modernist versus traditionalist battle, sort of what the church needs to be. For conservatives, you know, the church is at its best when it sort of maintains its sort of long-held beliefs uh, and goes against the culture. And, you know, that is what makes the church attractive, that it sort of withstands the tests of time. For, you know, more progressive-minded Catholics, the church, in order to have a prophetic voice, must uh, sort of speak to the times. And so that's the divide that we're seeing over this synod and, you know, more broadly within the Francis papacy. It seems to me, tell me if I'm reading too much into this, that the issue of the environment and the issue of the sacraments both have a source in the sacramental worldview of Catholics, that the tangible real world is the physical tangible world is the world in which God lives and moves and has has his being, so to speak. So just as it's important for the, uh, the parishioner to be able to take the body of Jesus into him, him or herself in the uh, in the liturgy, uh, he goes out. He or she goes out into the world, into a world that's in, that's just saturated with God's presence. So it d- does seem to me that both issues arise out of a profoundly sacramental view of the world. Is that a fair understanding? I think it's fair, and, you know, I, I, I think uh, Pope Francis would support <laughs> that that sort of understanding of, you know, what the Church is and why he's tried to link the two together. A phrase that has been repeated a lot in the lead-up to the Senate is his desire for the Church to have an Amazonian face, face, the need for a Samaritan Church. For Pope Francis, who is, I think, 
become known for his speaking through gestures. The idea that this remote region of the world and of the church could be denied the sacraments, you know, the physicality, you know, of the faith, it has to be given some serious attention. And I think he wants to link that with the sort of broader type of church that he's trying to sort of push the Catholic Church to becoming. So it sounds like for him, the issue is the church of the poor is the thing that connects those two things together. Absolutely. For him, you can't separate the two. We mentioned this a little bit during the gut check. I just wanted to go back to the fact that this conference is talking a lot about things that are happening in Brazil right now. And you had mentioned earlier, Chris, that the numbers of Catholics had declined in Brazil. But of course, what I find interesting is that this is not just people who have basically stopped practicing and don't really religiously affiliate anymore. Many of these people have actually begun embracing Pentecostalism or some form of evangelicalism in this country. Is there some sort of kind of specter of that that will be, I don't know, maybe will actually be addressed in the Synod or it will be kind of discussed in a different way? It just seems to be kind of like a complicated challenge, for lack of a better word, for the church. And I didn't necessarily see it on the list of things that they kind of plan to talk about. It's obvious that's Part of what's motivating this is if you look at the numbers, the, the drop to 60 to 65 percent of Brazilians now are being Catholic now. And, you know, 50 years ago, it was nearly 100 percent. That is a motivating factor. It'll be interesting to see if that is addressed in explicit terms, whether um, whether you have some bishops and priests standing up saying we're, we're losing our people to other other faith traditions or whether the language is a bit more or more nuanced in, in, in that. I'll be curious to see how Pope Francis himself navigates that. You know, when he was Archbishop of Buenos Aires in Argentina, he enjoyed strong relationships, particularly with the Pentecostal community. Throughout his papacy, ecumenical activities has been a real sort of pillar of, of the various initiatives he's undertaken. It's rare that you hear Pope Francis sort of putting it or framing this type of conversation as this competition between, say, Catholics and other Christians in, in the region. But, you know, for others, they won't mince words about the fact that, you know, Catholics are, are losing ground to predominantly Pentecostals in, in Brazil and elsewhere. We're going to have some major hot button issues such as the environment and that of married priests. But for me as a journalist, I'm quite interested in, in this particular topic to see how, how directly or indirectly they address that. And to be honest, I just, I don't have a, a real idea as to how that's going to look, what that's going to look like at this point. It's been interesting to me that Pope Francis has not been hostile. He's been very friendly and warm toward Pentecostalism. I recall in the early months of his pontificate, he actually agreed to some sort of, he addressed a, uh, what from our Protestant perspective would be a health and health and wealth, prosperity gospel Pentecostal meeting. People at the meeting were just overawed that he took the trouble to do this. So while as a uh, kind of a conservative Anglican, I was a little troubled that he gave so much attention to a group of Protestants I'm not enthusiastic about. It was pretty impressive that he did so. Uh, that particular gathering, uh, I believe he had recorded this message on a, an iPhone from a Pentecostal minister that he was very close with, who actually tragically died soon after that. Pope Francis has gone both, you know, around the world to to meet with various ecumenical Protestant groups every every year in June. He has a big commemoration with sort of the charismatic Catholics and their counterparts with other groups. And it's frankly, it's it's a group that when he was first uh, made Archbishop of Buenos Aires, that he was 
was skeptical of, began to get get to know some of the leadership and started attending and speaking at some of their events. So it's something that, you know, a number of his biographers have had to sort of puzzle over is what was the change of heart? And most of them would tell you that doesn't appear to be really substantive. It seems to be more relational. It's not so much, you know, issue driven for him, but, you know, as he's gotten to know various leaders, he's simply gotten to know them as individuals. And that's what's been a motivating factor for him. I wonder if something going on there is, is again, his concern for the poor among the Protestant movements and denominations. The Pentecostals are probably have a greater outreach to the poor than any other. And I wonder if that's something that impresses him. I think it it must be. And, you know, a phrase that you hear him repeat a lot is creating a a culture of encounter. I think that that's a motivating factor as as well, that, you know, you have to sort of encounter your neighbors and those that you live with and and around. And I, I think his concern for those on the peripheries, those on the outside that have been overlooked to sort of show them attention. And if that attention was being given by sort of the Pentecostal communities, there's probably some real admiration of Pope Francis toward these communities. To my understanding, one of the other issues that is going to be discussed at the Synod as well is about how the Catholic faith is contextualized to different situations. And when I think of the Amazon region in particular, rather than if they just said Brazil, I tend to think of different indigenous communities that still live in this area that maybe don't have the same Catholic infrastructure, I guess, that other parts of the country might have. I don't know if that's a fair assumption or not about what's going on, but I'm I'm curious, Chris, what you can tell us about the ways that you imagine the church talking about contextualization this week and any practical examples of that. The Senate officially started on, on Sunday with a Mass, and then yesterday on, on Monday was the first major day of, of discussions. But in the lead-up to that on uh, over the weekend at the Vatican, there was a, a big sort of indigenous sort of ceremony in the Vatican Gardens where the Pope and a number of cardinals and a number of indigenous people from the region planted a tree. If you look at some of the images that have come out of Rome in the past few days, what you see are a number of sort of folks in, you know, these colorful outfits and, and headdresses, not your typical scene that you would see at a papal liturgy. And I think one of the things that, you know, the the organizers of this synodic that they've tried to do is show this is a very different type and a different way of being church that is still valid. You saw them, you know, uh, they had a procession from St. Peter's Basilica over to the Synod Hall where they're meeting, where they were playing various instruments and and, and, and dancing. I think, you know, their their intentional message was, you know, this is, this is uh, our church too. These individuals in the Amazon aren't often having mass in grand cathedrals that we're used to. You know, they're having, you know, often outdoor celebrations. You know, this is something that dates back to Pope John Paul II, you know, when he visited the indigenous communities in Canada or, or out in the southwest of, of, of this country. he's He made it very clear, Pope John Paul II did, that 
the global church has a lot to learn from, about the sort of passion and dynamism of the church in these sort of particular regions and areas. Uh, and I think this is, again, another area in which the Pope is sort of saying, we, we need to learn from you here. To be honest, that is causing others to bristle, saying, you know, this isn't what we are as church. And over the weekend in Rome, you know, there was a big counter-protest event where a very notable, you know, Catholic traditional historian referred to those from the region as that of savages. So you're seeing some real, some conversations that are tinged with racism even. There could be some ugliness in the weeks ahead as the church tries to navigate this. This is so interesting because uh, my reading of history is that Catholics have been kind of the exemplars of contextualization uh, all through their history to the point of both Protestant Catholics have thought that sometimes they've gone too far in contextualization. And the idea of contextualizing the faith in, a, in a, like medieval Europe before it became Christian and adapting some of the local even in the Roman Empire, they adapted some of the Roman holidays in order to integrate that culture into the church. So it, d- it does surprise me when this, when people object to this t- so vociferously. Culturation uh, in the Catholic tradition is uh, a two-way street. It will, it will be uh, interesting to see how that plays out over the next few weeks. <laughs> All right. Well, Chris, you have given us an extremely thorough overview of everything that is going on. And I know that I'm definitely more informed about this, and I'm sure our listeners will be as well. For people who have feedback, they can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. By the way, we really love it when you send us emails and you guys send some really great and thoughtful ones. Thank you very much. You can also go on Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts as well. So I wanted to take this time to just remind you guys that you can support us in other ways than just becoming subscribers. And one of those ways is by donating. It's morect.com slash podcast if you are interested. And, you know, sometimes Mark and I talk about the various things that we do and people we hang out with. And a couple of weeks ago, I traveled to but another religion news association conference, which is essentially where people who are religion journalists, both from mainstream and secular outlets, and also from outlets like ours that are more faith-specific, convene and just talk about religion. Did you ever go, Mark? No, because I've never really been a part of the news department. But yeah, it's been a very important part of our world to, to network with. And CT, thankfully, because of the good work of our reporters over the years, has a high profile in those organizations. They respect our work a lot. And we respect theirs and we actually use them as sources or we just share information with one another to, to each help us do better news reporting. Yeah, and I think that people can see from even our conversation today that there's just a lot of intentionality that goes into this type of beat. Sometimes religion journalists in particular can feel frustrated with other journalists for not necessarily taking as nuanced of a perspective towards people who are religious and when they look at their faith commitments because they feel like, man, there's always just so much more to the story and that you really get that sense when you're talking to other people that are in the industry. They take people's faith seriously and they're trying to explain that to their readers and their audience, not just kind of, I don't know, what maybe you would say like shrouded in politics or something like that. Yeah, which, which is the way the secular press tends to cover religion right now. It's always about politics. It's always the binary left against right. And one of the things we like to do at Quick to Listen is to make sure people know, well, that's part of the story. But in many cases, it's not even the most important part of the story. It's not what's central. Absolutely. Well, if you are so inspired to support this podcast, you can do so by going to morect.com slash podcast. That's morect.com slash podcast. Now is the time that we call Precious Moments. Everyone can share something that has brought them joy in the past week. Go ahead, Mark. 
My wife and I have gotten in the habit of doing something we never allowed our family to do when our kids were younger, and that is to say we eat in the living room, <laughs> and we usually watch some episode of some TV series. So we're in the middle My of- My parents do that too now. Better, better Call Saul, and we watch an episode a night. On Saturday night, we watch two- <laughs> It's very. I'm just surprised at your guys' restraint and only watching one episode. Ah, uh, yeah, we still have things to do and plans to plan and dreams to dream. But so we're watching Better Call Saul right now, and we've watched The Crown before that. Oh, yeah, I could list dozens we've done, but it's just a nice, pleasant little ritual we have every night, and we were, we did it last night, previous night. Something, something I look forward to. Who picks the next TV series? Uh, we go back and forth. We try to pick something we're both willing to watch. There's some that, like, she wants me to get into the great British baking show, and I'm just, I, she has it on sometimes, and I listen off to the side, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to watch that together with her. No, that's not going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And I told her, I told her about Breaking Bad. I don't think she would like Breaking Bad, so I've told her what it's about and kind of the gruesomeness of it, and she just said, I don't think I want to watch that. I said, that's fine. But I watched it. (laughs) Anyway, it's, it's a delightful thing to share with your wife at this stage. In our life. All right. So, Mark, do you want to say where people yeah. can find you? They can find me at my home. All right. At Christianity Today offices or if in my trailer. But if you want to just get in touch with me or hear what I'm thinking, you can re- you can subscribe to the Galley Report. G A L L I Report. ChristianityToday.com slash the Galley Report. It's a weekly newsletter in which I link to four or five articles and comment on them and try to distill maybe, yeah, maybe not hours of reading, but maybe hours of reading. Some of the stuff I think is the most interesting, most relevant for people of Christian faith today. Catholic and Protestant. All right, Chris, you ready? A high point of the week for me, or this past week, was my my sister, uh, who's two years younger than me, came to visit this weekend. And it was the first time she'd been able to visit me. Uh, I live in New York and nine years. And I, I, you know, I I see her quite often, but she has a family. And so I'm normally the one going to her. We had a nice sibling weekend together. And we we have, you know, I'm exhausted by it now. But we ran around town and ate a lot of good food and saw a lot of great people and had beautiful weather. And and it was just nice. I spent a lot of my time traveling, and so it was just nice to be at home and get to have her enjoy that with me. Sounds perfect. What was the one thing that was the biggest highlight of the weekend? So besides the food, probably taking her. I recently moved apartments and getting her to show her my neighborhood, and particularly my favorite park, she fell in love with as well, was definitely a highlight. That's awesome. Very cool. All right. Where can people find your work? All of my coverage of the Catholic Church can be found at cruxnow.com, C-R-U-X-N-O-W.com, or you can find me on Twitter at, at C-W-White-212, at C-W-White-212. And I would, yeah, I would encourage listeners to go to that site every once in a while. It's, it's the most even-handed and fair site about what's happening in the Catholic world, which does sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly affect our Protestant world as well. So it's good for us to be informed about So my that. precious moment is that I am now done going to weddings for three months. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> no, I, I went to four weddings in five weeks. That's a lot of weddings. <laughs> I, and I had to fly to California for one of the weddings. One of the weddings had the reception on Saturday and the wedding ceremony on Sunday. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Interesting method. Did you catch the bouquet at any of these? No one does that anymore, actually. Huh? I don't know a single wedding where they... How about that? Participate in that. What's this world coming to? I know, right? <laughs> but overall, it was a positive experience going to them and 
you can do a lot of comparing and contrasting is all I'll say. <laughs> I know sometimes people are like, oh, don't stress it. No one will notice anyway. Listen, if you go to that many weddings back to back, you notice. <laughs> no pressure to anyone planning a wedding right now that I'm trying to do. But I'm obviously like very honored and glad that so many people chose to include me in how they do all of this because I do know it's really expensive to feed people and host people. So it meant a lot that I got to celebrate with all of these people. I would say I went to extremely churchy weddings. I went to an Episcopalian wedding, an Anglican wedding, a church that was, or a wedding that was done by people from my house church. But the, before this, like the actual wedding ceremony happened, we had worship and we, the guy who was teaching preached an entire sermon and I went to a Jewish wedding. I did feel like on the weekends where I didn't go to church, I still went to church because of how (laughs) these weddings were organized and so forth. We'll make you an Anglican yet. Yeah, exactly. Converted through going through all these weddings. But anyway, that's happened to me. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. It's produced by myself and Matt Linder. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts. You can also find it on Spotify. Please rate and review the show if you go on to Apple Podcasts. The music is done by Sweeps. And if you want to support the show, go to morect.com slash podcast. We will see you all next week. Bye. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by the MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership Program at Wheaton College Graduate School, preparing leaders to serve the most vulnerable and the church globally. For more information, go to wheaton.edu slash hdl.